trailblazer, innovator, founder, visionary. These are some of the words that came to mind after talking with today's guest, Jerry Michael. Back in 1999, Jerry saw a need within the financial services industry. It was operationally burdensome to manage customized tax, risk, and expense-sensitive personal portfolios. It is a burden that was even heavier given that technology solutions of today weren't around to help financial advisors back in 99. The burden that Jerry looked to solve in 99 is one that advisors continue to be challenged with in 2019. Jerry and his team at Smartleaf have solved this problem, but more importantly, Jerry saw a need in the industry and was a visionary to bring technology when it wasn't hip to do so into an industry that has tended to be shy to use new tech. And today we talk about how technology and financial advisors have evolved and what the next 20 years will look like for financial advisors. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Jerry, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you taking some time. Uh, So snow up in Boston, Uh, winter is just beginning, I'm assuming, for y'all. Winter is just beginning. Um, well, it's interesting. When we were doing some prep for this podcast, I, I noticed that you had another company uh, before Smartleaf, and uh, you actually sold it to the Washington Post. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, so actually, the uh, co-founders and I had all had previous companies that had done well. Uh, we had you know, 10x return to investors, and that's a great thing. And that was actually the origin of Smartleaf. We had a living room conversation because we were in the wonderful position, I, I highly recommend it, of having to worry about how to invest. <laughs> uh, and so we sat around uh, and decided, well, you know, mutual funds are good, but it's even better if you own individual stocks. Wasn't a new idea, but concluded that you really had to have a lot of money. And we did a back-of-the-envelope calculation, $25 million plus for this really to work, uh, because you had to hire this expensive MBA to do everything on a yellow pad. And so the original conception, would really think the push to, for us to create Smartleaf, was, well, we didn't think we were clever enough to beat the market. That would be a hedge fund. Mm-hmm. But we did think we might possibly be clever enough to do all the incredibly boring stuff that that MBA was doing on a yellow pad, you know, tax management, risk management, constraint management. Uh, so we wanted to bring down sort of the, the possibility of having a really well-managed uh, portfolio by a factor of 1,000, from 25 million to 25,000. And we actually now have $5 accounts on the system. So mm. we've actually got another factor of 1,000. That's great. And so you, you understand the process of of building a company, getting investors, um, reporting to investors, and then ultimately going through an acquisition, which, you know, I know it, it was the company a tech company that y'all sold to the Washington Post, or was it a service-based company? It was a tech, well, actually, it was a, effectively an early version of Monster.com. It had okay. nothing to do with finance. It was digitizing uh, resumes to make them easily searchable, to make it easier for uh, employees and employers to find each other. And then how did you, so, so I understand that you had to figure out how to invest money, but then to learn about this industry, right? I mean, coming from a non, or did you have a finance background or did you have to go and kind of bring in some people or talk with a lot of people to understand the financial advisor landscape and, uh, and the business there, or did you already have some background there? No, it was entirely the latter. Our first step is we just did some online research and we found some Harvard Business School professors who did research in uh, portfolio management. So we just cold called them and said, look, does this make any sense at all? And they said, yes, it does. They recruited two other um, 
uh, Harvard Business School professors. And then from there, we recruited an additional uh, economics professor. And then we went off and recruited folks from the financial services industry. Interesting. So, I mean, they, they uh, and they had never seen anything like this before at that time, I'm assuming. They had not. Right. Um, well, let's get into it, uh, because I think that the, the beginning of Smartleaf is really intriguing to me. I mean, just this as we're talking now in terms of, you know, just call, cold calling Harvard business professors, I think is incredibly um, interesting. And you were bringing a technology solution to the industry during the tech boom, 99, 2000, 2001, uh, the, the, the pets.com boom and everything of that nature. But advisors uh, were not, I mean, today they're still shy to adopt technology. Back then, I would like to say that they were allergic to technology from that standpoint. Um, and I was in, I was, I mean, I've been in the industry. So what were the challenges that you faced trying to get, let's not even talk about the building of the technology. That could be a whole nother route, but getting the technology adopted when you started back in 99, 2000, what were the challenges y'all faced? Well, there were some that don't exist anymore. I mean, we were browser-based from the beginning, uh, so we were hosted, and all you needed was a web browser to use the service. And in 99, that was unusual. Uh, that's not anymore. So those barriers are gone. But the basic barrier actually hasn't changed. We change things. We change the way people do business. We actually, in some cases, change their fundamental business proposition. And that's, you know, that, that's a good reason for people to be reluctant. It's a big change. And that actually hasn't changed uh, in 20 years. Has, has it become so? Because change is always difficult, um, no matter what you're doing, right? In our personal life, in our professional life, whatever it may be. Have, have you seen that change is more adopted or more accepted now? Are, are people more accepting to change uh, in their practice or in their firm today than they were in 99? Uh, and if so, why, why do you think that is? Just because of time? Or, or how, do you, how, do you, how would you describe that? I would say yes, but it's not so much that you know, human nature has changed. I think change is, is, is hard now, and uh, just as it was then. What I think is there's been a greater realization they have to change, mm -hmm. that if they don't change, eventually they're just going to have to ride into the sunset. Have you, because you've, you've had clients, you know, throughout this entire period of time, and right now I would suggest that we're probably in this really innovation revolution of technology within our industry time period, where technology is becoming more and more prevalent and it's growing at an exponential rate. Have you seen that the companies that you may have talked to back in 99 or 2000 or 2001, even 2002, that didn't adopt the technology, are they now coming back and being more accepting of it would be my first part. And then the second part would be, um, are those companies that didn't accept or adopt the new technology back then, are they lagging the industry? Have you been able to see any of that as you've kind of been in the industry of technology within this space for so long? I said, I think, uh, as we were talking about before, that the real driver of the technology is not necessarily an attitude toward technology. It's the recognition of a business need for change. And that is, that is the driver in all cases. Yet it is the case that sort of we have clients that are growing 50% a year and they embrace technology. And I doubt you could grow as fast as our fastest growing clients do grow 
if they didn't embrace technology. So there is a connection there. But I think it's not the case that you could just, hey, I'm just going to adopt new technology and then I'll start growing 50% a year. I don't think it's that simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I agree 100% with you. I think that there's an, there's an aspect of a cultural change to accepting change in the industry and learning because uh, just by loading your 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 company up with a, a huge tech stack of all these cool innovative technologies isn't going to make you an innovative and efficient firm you got to understand the why you need the technology and have a company and employees that are open to learning and, and adopting uh, new technologies to get that ROI I want to peer behind the curtain a little bit of Smartly. Don't give away your the secret sauce. Um, but technology in itself, right? Today we're talking about AI, artificial intelligence, and everything. And, and you're talking about in 99, we were a browser-based, right? Now we have apps on our phone that, you know, what you all were doing in 99, that's now quickly on a phone, right? And so technology has evolved, and you all have had to stay up with that. And so how has this impacted? How has the evolution of the technologies that are now available to you impacted the evolution of the smart leaf technology and software as a whole over the past 20 years? I think in some ways we were ahead of the time. You know, we were browsers, as people now say, cloud-based uh, back then. Um, and those that did pose issues in the beginning. It doesn't anymore. I'm oddly going to give a slightly different take on this. The, ch- the issue we face really is less about technology than about what people's, what their vision of their own firm is. Mm. Uh, and it really gets back to what we do and how we change firms. Um, and that's, that's always been the bigger issue than the, uh, than the technology itself. The te- you know, our implementations are easy, uh, more or less, but it's, it's the change that it requires is not. So that let's go down that rabbit hole for a second. We could spend hours probably down this, this rabbit hole, but how are y'all helping firms see their vision for their firm? Or, or, or are you just saying that the firms that don't have that vision, they're, you, you, it's unable to be changed at this point in time? How are you all helping firms uh, get to that point where they see the vision and where technology is part of that vision? You know, that's a great question. And I have to I'm not sure we're the ones who have ever brought to our clients a vision. The clients bring that to us and then we help them achieve it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, the cases of, you know, what, what uh, brings people to us, um, you know, it will be someone who wants to go up market. Um, they say, look, I want to serve high net worth investors. I've got to offer transition and customization. I have to manage equities. Uh, you know, we just do mutual funds and ETFs right now. That's not good enough. All right, we can help them. People who want to go down market, they want to uh, serve people who are less affluent, but they need a efficient service model. And they realize their existing service model simply won't be profitable. So, all right, people who want to go down market. We've had folks who um, like outsource their operations. They don't manage money at all, uh, but they want to bring it in-house. All right. They've never managed money before. How do they do that? Uh, and then the best one of all is the folks who um, the wheels are falling off. They are growing so fast that they come to a conclusion that they either have to stop growing, which some of them will choose to do, uh, or they have to fundamentally change their service model. Those in all what, what connects those four use cases is there's some the client walked in with a vision. They wanted to do something mm-hmm. and they realized they need to start with sort of a blank uh, whiteboard in terms of how they were going to deliver their services. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that is right. The firm from the top down has to have that vision. No 
I, I agree with you. No tech company can really go in and say, here's what your vision should be, right? That's a consulting coaching type company that may need to help the, the, the leadership there. But um, in your opinion, do the, the, the firms that you talk with, they, they usually probably coming in with a need of you know, the overgrowth or the, they, they realize something's broken or something of that nature. But the firms that you talk with and the advisors that you talk with, are they adopting enough technology to create true efficiencies within their practice? Or is it still really early that they're just like dipping their toe into the water there? It depends. Uh, some have embraced it totally. I would say most are dipping their toe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know, can I, can, I, can I go down a rabbit hole for let's, a little bit? Let's do it. This, this is a podcast of rabbit holes. So as many as we oh, can go right. down, then, then we can go down. So rabbit hole it is. Um, so what? We are about efficiency. We want to make it, uh, you, you can deliver uh, highly customized tax-sensitive portfolios at scale. Great. Our real job, our real mission is to get out of the way. We want to make this table stakes. That, of course, you know, you're going to get high levels of customization and tax management. That's not going to be your competitive advantage. Uh, it's like, you know, uh, I'm old enough that to remember when anti-lock you know, lock brakes were, were luxury items. No, yeah, they're not luxury items. Every car has them. And actually, it's, that's our goal. It's kind of an oddly modest goal. We want to make everything that we make possible table stakes. But then that raises the question of you know, what are the firms actually doing? The advisor is not spending um, you know, uh, any time. In fact, this, this is our core proposition. No advisor should spend time rebalancing portfolios. They're demonstrably not that good at it, mm-hmm. most of them. Uh, and they also really shouldn't be playing the role of chief, chief investment officer. They should not be picking stocks or even doing asset allocation. So what are they doing? And that's the interesting thing that most firms face. All right, we've cleared the, cleared the deck. We've cleared the desk. Now what? And the answer is not so much something new. It's that I think every advisor will start doing what's kind of uh, the very best advisors are already doing. They will become true counselors, true advisors, some combination of, you know, personal trainer, psychologist, priest, uh, whatever it is. I think they also start to take a much larger interest in the client's life goals more holistically. They become a coordinator of different professionals. Uh, I think there's an analogy here that when TurboTax came out, uh, you know, years ago, it didn't put accountants out of work. Um, It just forced the accountants to become consultants. And I think that's really what happens with our technology. We're kind of the TurboTax. Um, It doesn't, it's the, the implication of that is that advisors go really up market in the value in the value they provide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, All and, right. and that well, no, but that that is an interesting rabbit hole because I think that we are in. I mean, I've been an advisor. I, I, we have two financial advisory firms. We built technology to make them more efficient, and we're our technology is being used by our advisors. The pushback that I got even internally when I was a partner at both of those firms, having them implement technology that we had built, being the partner. They were saying, well, what the, the pushback wasn't directly, well, what is my value? Nobody's ever said, I don't want to use it because I lost my value. But every pushback is, well, I want to make a custom portfolio or I want I, if I need to be able to trade their accounts. And it's because this industry is still kind of built on this idea that our value is within the investment management, whereas you know, you look at all the Vanguard studies and everything, the value really is in that psychological coaching, behavioral coaching, right? Yeah, you need to know why Apple is down so you can understand the, the, the analysis of it and then be able to create that, um, 
understandable story and description to the end client. That is something that is very, very skilled that you need to be able to do. But you going and trading Apple and determining when to buy and sell, it may not be your, that's not the top, that's not what's going to add the most value to your end clients. But the advisor industry still has this deep down um, uh, desire to have their value being something tangible like a trade or an asset allocation or the portfolio return um, as opposed to helping the advisor kind of steer or navigate that path uh, to their financial happy place, whatever that may be. Um, so I think that that's a really interesting um, a point that you make as well in terms of you know what is your value and, and figuring that out and letting technology take some of that off so you can expand your value to more individuals. Um, so that was my rabbit hole, my soapbox for a second there, uh, because I thought that was really interesting. Um, wh- when you, um, portfolio rebalancing and tax efficient investing, that's evolved over the past 20 years, right? You guys were really leading visionary trailblazers in that sense. Uh, and I'm sure now your competition has continued to expand since y'all had begun uh, back in 99. So how have you all been able to continue separating yourself or differentiating yourself from the others within your kind of your segment within the technology space? Well, actually, the surprising thing is we are still separate. Uh, we will tell prospects. Basically, if any of the other systems work for you, you're done. Just stay with them. Uh, you probably don't need to work with us. The core difference is we set out from the beginning to automate rebalancing. You know, we when we backtest our system, we'll backtest it for six years and let the blinking lights blink. And, you know, we'll come back after six years and say, well, how did we do in terms of low dispersion and ta- generation of tax alpha? It is reasonable to ask of our, of our system, well, how much tax alpha does it generate? That isn't really even the ambition of other systems. Um, they are mostly tools to make advisors more efficient at rebalancing. We are not. Uh, we are a tool that at heart, is designed to get uh, client-facing advisors out of the job of rebalancing entirely. The thing that we did, there's actually really three things that are innovative about what we did, and they still seem to set us apart, which is, first, we take the traditional role of the advisor, and we break it into three pieces. And we call those three pieces uh, the investment policy committee, which is designing, choosing stocks and uh, asset allocations to maximize, you know, return for any given risk. The overlay manager function, which is actually trade portfolios, and what we call the advisor function, which is to design a customized solution. So we split this into three parts, and the best way to use our system is to have three groups use it. Mm-hmm. So now the advisor is no longer taking, is no longer rebalancing portfolios, nor are they the ones who are creating the market-beating asset allocations or stock selection. The second part we do, which is sort of related to this, is that customization and tax management for us, it's about a parameters. It's, oh, I want tax management. Oh, I want a tax budget. Oh, I want social screens. Oh, I want whatever it is. It's a bunch of parameters. Uh, And that's a very different way for advisors to think about customization. The good news is it becomes free from the advisor's perspective. Why not? It's a bunch of choices and checkboxes and uh, selections on pull down menus. So if you make anything free, people consume more of it. So the interesting thing is when people do it this way, the level of customization goes way up Mm -hmm. because it's free. Um, And then the third thing we do is we actually automate the rebalancing, which is really uh, the job of the overlay manager. But this, this, this architectural approach to it, we don't see any of our competitors taking the same approach. So even after 20 years, we're still kind of off to the side. 
And it's not that we're better than the other guys or they're better than us. We're trying to do different things. Mm-hmm. Is there any, and this is kind of just going down another angle, is there any kind of, um, th- or does it keep you up at night, I guess, with mm-hmm. the advancements of, you know, I mean, you have MIT over there in, the, in your backyard, and, and there, everybody in the industry is trying to figure out how to use AI to, to do some of the predictive uh, analytics that are helping to drive whether the decision was right or wrong. And I know that you can only really tell if it was right or wrong by actual data, but does it keep you up at night at all that those types of minds can build something that is very similar and predictive at a high uh, accuracy rate that can replicate anything that you're doing? Or or is your or is the amount of data that you have over the past 20 years just so hard to replicate in your mind? Well, actually, I'm gonna, uh, let, me, let me tell a story. Partly um, it's co-founder, a fellow named Mark Nitzberg. Um, he currently has what I think is the world's best title. Uh, he is the executive director of the University of California, Berkeley Center for Human Compatible Artificial Intelligence. Which <laughs> Does I, that fit I, on I, a business card? I don't know how that fits on a, on a business card. And he's actually giving the uh, a keynote speech at the American Bankers Association on AI and uh, finance. So he's still, you know, close to the company. And we talk about, uh, you know, where, how AI will uh, affect finance. So no, I mean, I don't think in what we do in particular, I don't think there's going to be, uh, it's uh, create a revolution. To some extent, you know, to the, we are replacing a human function under one definition of AI. Mm-hmm. We are AI. Um, under the more narrower definition of using massive data sets and, you know, deep learning, we're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to do that, you need a definition of truth. That's the essence, as I understand it, of deep learning. And it's not clear that what we do lends itself to that sort of approach in the short run. I think AI will have interesting implications, but less so directly and immediately in what we do. Right. No, that makes sense. Um, so, I want to wrap up here with a couple other questions. I have about two more, and we may go down another rabbit hole, so I may not get to all of them. But uh, and I'm okay with that. I love that. Um, and and I may get on a soapbox again. Who knows? But you talk with a lot of financial advisor firms. How do you believe um, that they should really look at evolving as firms with regards to ter- their technologies uh, and the experience that their clients have with technologies? Um, I mean, you've seen a lot. So how do you think that firms, if you were to create a a blueprint for them, how do you think they should evolve with utilizing technologies internally and then also client facing uh, over the next couple of years? Well, I would say start with your value proposition. Oh, what, you know, why are you there and what value are you adding? And be really honest uh, uh, with yourself about where you're adding value. I mean, I've already expressed the opinion, which, you know, I'm happy to go out there. It's unlikely to be specifically in the, the ability of the advisor to rebalance or even for the individual advisor to, you know, pick winning stocks. So what are they doing? Uh I don't think the answer is new. I think it is back to, you know, good old fashioned advice and probably a larger role of kind of the uh, sort of the uh, general contractor for that client. So, all right, if that's who you're going to be and then the most successful firms we work with, they very much very explicitly state that's that's their value proposition. Great. All right. Uh, You would start with the technology, which is not smartly of how are you going to provide those services? said, what we do is we clear the deck. So they're not an advisor spending zero time rebalancing uh, portfolios. So it's 
the most successful firms have a very clear idea of who they want to be and why they're, you know, why they're better than a robo. They have a very, very clear answer mm-hmm. to why, you know, why don't I just pay the robo 25 basis points? Um, once they have that, then the tech, a lot of the technology answers uh, will just fall into place. And going down that path, I think that that's a really an, um, a really great thought and, and something that advisors need to really take to heart when it comes to technology because everybody just thinks that they should just adopt more and more technology. And I just think that that's, uh, that's missing the point. And, but, but with regards to... There's a lot of headlines out there with regards mm-hmm. to technology, and they talk about advisors' lack of adoption of technology. Let's say, so let's let's move away from do they have a why and a purpose for the firm. Let's just look at it from the technology uh, view right now. Is are those headlines true? Are advisors still slacking and adopting technology in your mind? Um, yes, but um, you know, somewhat um, cantankerously, I'm going to keep tying it back to the to the former. Um, it's you're, I think you're absolutely right. You know, you just buy shiny technology and just put it in your firm and just plug it in. I don't think it will make a difference. Um, technology, the, the firms that we work with, they have a very clear idea of what they're trying to accomplish. They have usually have metrics of whether they're accomplishing it, and the technology is there to serve an end. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I'm really intrigued on this one point as well because I, I'm I'm wondering as we're talking about implementation of technology, when you are implementing technology at firms, who is taking the lead on that, right? You're probably selling the vision to the COO or the CEO or someone high up that understands, yeah, we need to reduce the rebalancing. This is much better, more efficient. But they don't their their job title probably doesn't mean that they should be implementing the technology, right? And so um, do you think that firms need to have technology teams to be effective at technology? Or do they just need to get someone that wants to own the idea of being the implementer implementer of technology? How do you see that from your, from your seat? I think it's much uh, the latter. The issue uh, for technology is not the actual hooking up the pipes, which mm-hmm. at least in our case is, is relatively straightforward. The issues, the challenges of adoption and implementation are not about the technology. They're about people actually using the mm-hmm. technology. So, you know, it's, you, 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 if it's there and it's on, you know, nobody sort of turns to it, you know, that's not a successful implementation. So that's not a technologist issue. That's a management issue. Mm-hmm. And it, it gets back to the management having uh, both clearly stating what their vision is, getting buy-in. I mean, I don't want to um, minimize how difficult change management is to get buy-in. You know, last, you know, a lot of organizations, you know, somebody at the top has some clever idea and people just roll their eyes and ignore it. Well, you know, that's, it, it's not easy. But the issue isn't, it doesn't mean you have to turn over. In fact, I don't think it's a technology problem mm-hmm. at heart. Mm-hmm. It is a management problem and a difficult one, potentially. Mm-hmm. No, I think that um, I agree with you wholeheartedly there. I mean, we could keep this conversation going for a while. I want to turn, uh, but I, I want to be respectful of your time uh, and also the, the, the listeners as well. And so we're going to turn to buy, sell, which is my uh, cheesy game right. that, I, that I created to help kind of weave in all this tech talk with the financial advisor uh, uh, industry. So what I'm going to do is we have four topics. I'm going to say buy or sell. You just let me know if you're buying or you're selling. We'll see if you're bullish or bearish. Uh, and then you can give a you know a quick blurb on why you're either buying or selling. So uh, you ready to play? I'm ready. All right. Buy or sell. Five years from now, 
there will be more RIAs, registered investment advisors, than there are today? I'll say buy. Uh, and the reason is that it's, they're going in a direction of actually adding more value. And I went back to that analogy to TurboTax and accountants. Mm -hmm. I believe there are more accountants today than when TurboTax came out because they're adding more value. And that's the direction we see. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's because more people are going to get in the industry or do you think that more people are going to move away from broker dealers uh, and some of those types of bigger name firms to create RIAs? RIAs? In the short run, I think it's, you know, the latter will be a driver. Mm -hmm. But in the long run, I just think there will be more demand for this service as the services get better. That's a great thing for the industry. I love your outlook there. Uh, buy or sell, artificial intelligence will be a technology that financial advisors utilize within their practice beyond just asset allocation in 10 years. Yes, but here I'm going to... Um, be modest. Um, I really don't know what it looks like. I mean, you can come up with sort of interesting ideas, mm -hmm. but at the end, you know, it has to actually serve people's lives better. And you know, when most, as we were talking about earlier, what most people think about machine learning and sort of the uh, huge success cases, there are, you know, you can have millions of photos of car, not car. You know, there's lots and lots of examples of truth. Mm -hmm. Well, not exactly sure what truth looks like in advice. So I'm actually a little bit sort of shy about sort of making some grand pr uh, prediction about how, how that's going to all shape out. I think that's a fair, and I think that um, it all goes back to something you said earlier, If it has to add value. If it adds value, then yeah, people will use it. Um, but if it doesn't add value, then it's going to be really hard to get adoption. All right, buy or sell, advisors are going to face a drastic challenge with compression and fees over the next seven years. Um, I'll give a yes, no. Um, the yes, if they don't change, absolutely. Um, if you know they, they face the issue, what are you doing that a robo uh, isn't? And if they don't do anything different, yes, they're going to face fee compression. But I think most advisors don't. And interestingly, we've spoken to folks who are actually you know uh, monitor fees. There are they are not going down. Mm -hmm. And if I can go back yet again to my accountant uh, example, accountant fees didn't go down with TurboTax. They mm -hmm. actually went up. Mm -hmm. And my expectation is fees, if anything, here it is, you know, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be the lone voice, they may go up, mm -hmm. but they will go up for folks who actually up their game. Well, I always like to talk about a study that talks that did a study of firms that, uh, that lowered their fees versus firms that kept their fees the same or increased it. And the average of the firms that kept their fees the same or increased it was about one, slightly over 1%. And they looked at turnover of client turnover of those firms. And the firms that lowered, their, kept their fees the same or higher, they actually had better client retention than the firms that lowered fees. Because what they, what the takeaway was, was that if you lower your fees, it's a band-aid, it's a short-term band-aid for something that's truly missing. Because clients aren't necessarily leaving over fees. There's a miss in the link of customer satisfaction, customer service, value, whatever it may be. So I, uh, I agree with you there as well. Uh, buy or sell, the financial advisor-client relationship will look different in five years than it does today. Yes, I think basically what it will be is that all advisor relationships will look more or less like what the very best look like today. There will be some additions as well. I think the digital portals will be far more you know, the fact that I can do things online at three in the morning, uh, I, you know, I can deposit checks with my iPhone, that actually is just better service. I think there will be elements of that where it will just be genuinely better. Mm -hmm. But I think the biggest effect won't be that sort of that I can do things on my iPhone at three in the morning. 
it will be that the advisors will be just doing more. Mm-hmm. Slightly bullish. I like that. You're you're on the <laughs> bullish front. Uh, I always I'm, like to talk with bulls, so that's good. Uh, well, good. Well, I want to let you take. I, I'm going to give you 90 seconds. I, I I love to have the guests give a closing thought, and and really in this closing thought, I, I'd love to see if you if there's something that it you know tell the advisors that they can go and from your experiences and from your technology that they can implement into their firm today or tomorrow morning in order to really drastically boost efficiencies or when it comes to managing the client relationship. Well, look, shameless self-promotion with our system, we see, we actually have data that if you automate the rebalancing, uh, you will see the level of dispersion go down by about 60%, become much more consistent, but actually at the same time, you can become much more customized. So we see the level of taxes, tax burden also go down by about 60%. So the possibility of sort of becoming much more efficient about actually managing the portfolios and greatly increasing the level of customization. That's here today. We can do it for you. But the oddity of this is to do that, you have to decide what's going to replace all that time you spent doing those things. And what's going to replace the conversation, because you're not going to be talking about why you sold Ford and why you bought Walmart. Uh, conversations will no longer be sort of this memorabilia collection of a set of trades that you made. Well, what is it going to be about? For some firms, that's, that's a natural. They never talked about those things in the first place. Uh, but for other firms, that was what they were talking about. And then the question is, well, we can give you efficiency, but then what do you do? And that's the core question we would suggest firms ask. I love it. I love it. Uh, Jerry, thank you. I'm going to keep you here because we're going to have our closing remarks here in a second, but I, this conversation has spurred me uh, with a really intri- um, a, a thought, whether it's interesting or not, we'll let everybody else decide. So my closing thought is this. When we talk about innovation within the financial advisor space, people tend to instantly believe that means bringing on more technology, like we talked about here. There has been a great deal of innovation within our space in regards to the technologies that can make our firms more efficient, more communicative, and more personal with the end client. Where this technological innovation goes is limitless, and that should be exciting for financial advisory firm founders, advisors, and clients. But adopting new technology just to try and be more innovative causes a firm to take a major step back as opposed to a major step forward if they don't follow a couple other steps first. This will lead to having a bunch of great tech solutions but no real efficiencies between all of them. So. Firms that want to look at being innovative and pushing past the competition must first take two other steps. First, you must ensure that everyone in your firm, from the founder to the intern, understand why the firm is around. What is your firm's why? It's not necessarily your firm's core practice or line of business, but why did the founder take the risk to start the firm in the first place? And why does every employee wake up, drive into the office, and spend five days a week grinding. Maybe it's to change lives or maybe it's to provide the less fortunate opportunity, but everyone in the firm must know the firm why. Then second, it's about building a culture around learning. The smartest people know that they don't know what they don't know. We may be better than others at investing or managing money, but we sure as heck don't know everything. Thus, we all must continue to evolve our craft inside our industry and learn about things outside of the industry. 
This isn't just one person's job. It should be firm-wide. After you have this, then the ability to adopt new technologies and have them provide the desired ROI inside your firm will be more likely. Having a firm that is open-minded, open to change, and open to new ideas that may not be theirs are the firms that will truly be innovative and around for decades into the future. Jerry Michael of Smartleaf, thank you again so much for your time uh, and for the conversation. It was, uh, it was extremely interesting uh, and valuable, so thank you. You're very welcome. And to all the listeners out there, thank you again for joining us here on Bridging the Gap, and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. You